What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the minds of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. And the more I've been doing these podcasts, the more I realize that this is actually general investment advice as well. A lot of investment is down to herd behavior, how disciplined you are. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior and to get control of your thought process, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. In last week's episode, I talked about resilience in real estate and the long-term cyclical nature of this business. I talked about the market clock, um, the risks behind flipping, um, yield compression, rental growth. Um, In fact, I talked about how yields are valued, how, how they are constituted. And it's quite a confusing concept because to the person who's buying, they mean one thing. To the person who's selling, they mean another. And so uh, I'm going to be doing a workshop uh, kind of webinar on the valuation of property. So if anyone is interested in doing that, um, best thing to do is join the Behind the Facade community, the Facebook group, uh, because I'll be doing it in there. I'll be doing exclusively for members. And um, so Anyway, we'll get on. Patience and discipline is the, uh, the, the behavior that gets rewarded in real estate investing. If you're anyway kind of uh, impulsive or if you have any kind of um, desire for early payment and getting uh, paid, you know, without having to do the work and stuff like that, you're not going to get that in real estate. It's actually very risky for if that's the kind of mindset you have. You need to be a disciplined kind of person. Um, I was not so disciplined about 15 years ago and I did a couple of things that got me quite badly burnt in the 2008 crash. So I now preach discipline and uh, being careful about how you invest. Um, uh, Also, one of the things I wanted to clear up just last week, I was talking about the market clock and when to buy and when to sell and stuff. And I realize now, having re-listened to it, that it was very much aimed at the kind of trading type investment where you're buying, you're hoping to buy at the bottom and hoping to sell at the top. And actually, um, I, I miss, uh, I, well, I wouldn't say I misled you, but by saying that I've kind of ruled out the, the other alternative, which is just the long term hold. And if you think about Warren Buffett, the investment kind of guru, he doesn't buy stuff thinking about the date that he'll sell it. He just thinks that I'm going to own this forever. And as long as it makes sense when you're buying it, then it doesn't really matter how it fluctuates over time. And if you get that mindset correct, if you're happy with it, then that's where the resilience comes in insofar as you just have to understand that the market is cyclical. And so it's going to drop and rise. And when you buy your property, it may rise up, you know, a lot and a huge percentage and you might be on paper worth a lot of money but then equally the market will turn and it'll drop down in value and if you're a person who needs to get out to kind of extract the money at the top of the market you're going to be on this kind of roller coaster whereas if you've bought wisely you can actually just have be a long-term holder of property and as long as you're disciplined and you you know put money aside for repairs and renewals and things like that there's no reason why you can't hang on to property for you know, decades and actually end up passing it on to the next generation, your chi- your kids or whatever. So that was the last week. Now, this week is live Q&A. And uh, I'm, as you know, I'm streaming this on Behind the Facade community. And I've also introduced TikTok. And uh, I'm delighted to report that the Behind the Facade community is growing quite quickly. I've gone from last week when I did the seventh episode, I did I had 55 members in the group. Today, I have 83 as of this morning. And TikTok is just, it's just incredible. I've gone from, you know, testing it out for a bit of fun with my kids to getting two or three viral videos. And in the space of five days, I've had 110,000 views and I've added 1,500 followers in just a week. So... I'm blown away by this and it has introduced a huge lot of people to my podcast. And so um, welcome to all of you guys in TikTok world. And I, I hope if you guys are interested in participating more deeply in this kind of community, join into the Facebook community um, behind the facade. And that way you'll be able to participate in the live Q&As a little bit more effectively than 
through the TikTok because it's hard for me to read questions and stuff coming through there. Anyway, updates, quick update on things that are going on in my world since the last week. Apart from TikTok and all that, my Facebook uh, went crazy. And uh, when I say that, I on Thursday, no, it's on Tuesday of this week. So it's Thursday today, two nights ago. I woke up in the morning and I had 23 friend requests on my Facebook um, main sort of personal profile. And I was like, wow, you know, that must be lots of podcast listeners. And I didn't want to say no to people because I kind of thought this is what, you know, this is welcome. I like to have, you know, new contacts and stuff. But then throughout the day, it just went absolutely bonkers. And by the end of the day, I had over 110 Facebook follow uh, requests to be friends, which was total craziness and I started looking through it and going into detail and they had absolutely zero interest in property so I realized actually that something had happened in the Facebook algorithm and they were just sending me random people from all over the world so new rule imposed don't unless I know you unless we've actually interacted and by that you can send me a message on social or whatever and if I recognize your name and stuff then I'll be happy to welcome you into my profile but I'm not going to just welcome silent people that I don't recognize their name and um, another thing, a little bit of news and a bit of a win for me as far as um, speaking publicly is concerned, I have been asked to give a keynote speech at the Rico Tech Conference, which is a prop tech conference that covers the whole Nordic region. That's in November. So I'm super pleased about that. And it's, um, it's, it's interesting how all this kind of content you put out there gets noticed the next minute you start getting people talking to you and sending you requests to speak and stuff so that's in november um and then lastly um, on on updates i'm starting a newsletter uh soon and i've got it's if you want to be part of that newsletter when you go into any of my facebook pages or profile you'll see join my tribe on the left hand column and if you just click on that it takes you through to the MailChimp thing and you can just put in your details and fill out where you are and stuff and it's a nice little list that's growing and that will mean that you get updates because it's impossible to follow all of the content going on you don't know where it's coming from and where it's going in terms of feedback uh, last week I just wanted everyone to remember that this is not a local podcast this is what I talk about here is the universal principles of property investing. And so it's it's kind of aimed at a global audience. And I don't talk about, you know, Dublin market, Irish market particularly. I, I Of course, I know a lot of that because I'm in the market, but I'm not particularly focused on local issues. I'm looking at the principle, the larger issues that can be applied anywhere. So whatever you learn here in this podcast, the idea is that you can apply it into any market in the world so you can go to the us you can go to asia i've worked in i've worked in dubai i've worked in qatar i've worked in ghana in west africa i've bought property in new york city i've worked in london i've bought in spain and i've bought in ireland and so i've got kind of a, a global outlook and i don't particularly focus on any one market proof that it's working is the feedback i'm getting I want to say a quick shout out to Cabello in Johannesburg, South Africa, who told me that he's listening in and uh, Connor in Seattle in the US, uh, James in the Isle of Man. And a couple of these guys actually have questions here today that I'll be answering. And then loads of messages supports support from uh, friends like um, Robert Nile, Serkin, Mark. So I'm doubling down on this podcast. It's working well and I'm delighted. And uh, so if you want to connect with me in the Facebook group, uh, it's probably the best place to do it. Uh, obviously, it's my group, so I'm going to take pride in keeping that going. And um, if you're, you know, I started getting messages all over the place, like LinkedIn and uh, Instagram and Facebook and stuff. And to actually put together the question and answers list here today was actually quite a struggle because I had to kind of go through every different social media. So my preference would be inside the group um, if behind the facade community. And just if you want to do if this is if, if this is proving useful to you guys and you want to do me a little favor, what I would suggest is just find me on any one of those social platforms and just write the word wherever you're listening in from, whether it's the town or the country or something, just that one word. That's all I want to know. And that'll let me know how far out this podcast is getting. And uh, it's always interesting to know. So getting into the meat of the episode, uh, we're going to be talking in a moment about all the questions and answers that I got. 
So the first question came in from Owen Brady and Owen sent me a message that he had binged all seven previous episodes and he wanted to know if I could tell him about my big wins uh, where I added value in a short space of time. And I'm going to go into that now. But one of the things that I wanted to say is that the you know talking about big wins exclusively can be a little bit misleading because you'll start thinking that Jesus, you know, this this is an easy business and you can get in and get out and, and make tens of millions. And so I'm going to be balancing it today by telling you my first couple of deals. I'm going to be telling you about my best deals, the ones where I made the most amount of money. And I'm going to be telling you about the worst deals, or the ones that I where I lost a fortune. And um, so getting into the best deals and the worst deals, I thought I'd sort of ramble on for a few minutes about my very first deal. And uh, well, I bought a property when I, in 1993 when I was 21 and it was my first sort of home and it was wasn't expensive. Uh, back then, prices were pretty low. And so I think it was 85,000 uh, Irish pounds. And that 85,000, um, it was interesting. I bought it, I moved in, I, I lived there for, I think, six years before buying my second home. And in that six years, um, I, I really enjoyed it. I was right in the center of town. I was a young guy. Uh, so living in the center of town is kind of great fun. And when I, when I was moving out, I did it up and I decided to rent it rather than sell it. Uh, I had made a bit of a profit, but I decided to sell and I, I, I decided not to sell, I decided to rent it out. So I found a tenant and this tenant was a professor working in one of the universities in Dublin. And he, uh, he moved in in 1999 and he has been living in that house until recently. Uh, he only moved out in 2018 and the reason he moved out was actually because the adjoining property that I owned as well was getting done up and or was was actually done up and, he, and I wanted to do a job on the other one so he moved across to that one but he's still there and um, so in the time that he he was paying me a rent of 1,700 a month 1,777 a month I think it was it was whatever the euro rate conversion turned into so 1,777 euros a month and he paid me that for I think it is 19 years so do the math on that and you'll see that he basically paid me, I think, twice or three times over the price that I paid for that house. And that gives you an idea of why long term holding is by far the most sensible uh, option to take in this business. Second of all, um, I moved into a house in uh, Klonski, which is not too far away, but it's slightly further out. And it was a property I wanted to, uh, I'm a, an architect by training, so I wanted to do something where I could apply my skills as an architect, design and things like that. So what I did was I put um, the property, I bought a property that was basically an executor sale. And that means that there was an elderly person who had lived in the property right up until their death. And I don't know whether they died in the property or died in a nursing home, but the property was owned by somebody who was old. And when they died, they left the property to their you know, children or their offspring or their beneficiaries of whatever estate. And what happens when you do that is uh, it ends, you know, a lot of the time the kids don't want to, they, you know, if there's say four or five kids, you can't share a house together. So usually the, the house just gets sold. And so I managed to buy this property and it was completely overrun with them. Um, it was like it hadn't been touched in years and years and it was in pretty poor condition. It still had fireplaces in all of the bedrooms. It had a, a long back garden, but it was so overgrown that you couldn't actually see anything in it. Um, when I went out into the garden, you could only see, you know, kind of 20 or 30 feet uh, before it was just bushes and everything like that. And so it looked like a short garden. But I kind of went in and I hacked down some of the plants and stuff so I could get deeper. And I realized it was actually three times longer than what it looked like. So a lot of people that were going in and looking at that house were just taking this kind of cursory glance and looking at the garden and thinking, oh, it's not very big. And they were leaving. And because I kind of put a little bit of extra attention into it, I realized that this was actually a really long, long garden. And I saw the potential. So I bought this property. It was in, a, in a, uh, an auction. And I can remember going in and in all of about three minutes, I owned the house and uh, it's, it's quite a chaotic situation. You have to know where your price limit is or you can easily go over it. But um, I paid 392,000 for that property. 
And I moved into the property and I stayed in the property for about a year while I was doing plans for it. And that's often a good idea if you're thinking about doing up a house is by living in it before you do any work, you can actually find that you're... Um, you understand the way the sun moves in the sky and how it lights up certain rooms and which rooms are cold, which rooms are warm, which rooms have a nice view at certain times of the year. All of that helps you design the property better. And so went through all of that, moved out of the property then to start work on it, did quite a big job, took, uh, tore out all the stuff in the back garden to kind of completely expose the, the length of it. Um, and then I did a big job and I created extra rooms and did all this kind of stuff. Anyway, at the end of it all, I had um, spent probably about 200,000, so all in now, maybe 500,000, uh, 600,000 spent on it. And in 2006, sold the property for 1.9 million. So massive, massive gain in prices. Now, that wasn't necessarily because of the work that I did. The work I did definitely helped get that price, but the market in Dublin also ran away and went crazy at the time. So it was certainly lucky and just it wasn't all skill it was a lot of that was just luck and then um the other property i want to tell you about is actually there's, it, there's a development site so my first development project not involving a house that i actually wanted to live in the good thing about living in your own home that you're doing up for for property deals is that you don't pay tax when you sell it if it's your principal residence then when you sell it that's it uh, certainly in ireland obviously you got to check your if you're listening from abroad Maybe the taxation is different, but it's when it, here in Ireland, when it's your principal residence, when you sell, if you make, you know, five million profit on the sale, it's all tax free because it's your principal private residence. I bought a small piece of land and for all of you young guys and girls who are listening to this for the first time, I say on TikTok and you're thinking, how do you get into this business and stuff? I'll just explain this one deal and you can see how it doesn't it doesn't have to be so intimidating. So what this deal was is a small plot of land. I think it was an acre. So it's not that small, but for rural, in terms of rural land, it's quite small. And it was in this town of Enniscrone in Sligo. And I knew the town because my family were from that, from that part of the world. And this property, um, my family had had an interest in it over the years and nobody really did anything with it. It's just sat there. And I can remember approaching the family members that were involved and sort of saying, look, if you guys are not interested. I could buy it from you and I could get stuck in. And they were all like, yeah, no problem. So we got it priced and it was 25,000 pounds. So pretty small price to pay. And I bought that and I decided then let's go for planning permission, went for planning. And the planning permission came in. I managed to get four houses into that one acre site. So each on a decent size, nice driveway in, all that. And when I decided then to go and look for a builder to build this, I went out. Now, it took me a couple of months to, to get the planning permission. But when, the, when, it, when it came back, I got the four houses and the planning. The builders came to me and they were like, you know, why don't you just sell the property to us and we just like to buy it from you? And I, and I thought to myself, oh, you know, I want to I wanna do my first development and I want to make some money on this and blah, blah, blah. But the guy said, well, I'll pay you 125000 for it. So in the space of a couple of months, 100,000 profit was made on that little plot of land in Sligo. And funny enough, at the time I was working as an architect and I had, uh, it was my own business, an architectural firm. And I was in the process of doing a job for a client in Ranla. And this was a client that was a small house extension. They weren't spending much money. But they, the total fee for all of my work was like £8,000 for, for like a year's work. And I can remember thinking to myself, my God, I have spent a year working on this architectural job. And at the same time, I, in a few months, I've made 100000 And that's when I realized that real estate, property, all that is the way to go. Certainly for me, it was given I was an architect and I had these kind of skills. So those were the two early deals and I did them before I was 30. I did the f my, brought my first house in my 20s, early 20s, second house probably around mid, um, I'd say around 27 and 28 was the age that I did those other two deals. So then getting into the best deals and remember I'm going to balance this with my worst deals. So this is not me flexing and trying to, you know, to show off and, and tell you how great I am because I can show you how stupid I was as well. Um, 
best deal um, was a property. Well, there's two deals I'm going to talk about. There's one in Clondalkin, and it was a it was a building that was part of a it had formerly been a bank and the bank moved out they didn't want a location there anymore and this old property was sitting there and I knew because I had some friends in um, in the estate agents in that area they had said oh that property is going to be coming up soon so one of the first lessons is the the relationships if you the more people you know the the better you're going to have um, information that lets you make this kind of money so you got to get out there. You got to meet people. You've got to kind of stay in contact with people. That is the intelligence you need. Anyway, getting into this deal. So I bought the property. It was it was a bit of a struggle to buy it because the agents that I was buying from they appeared to me to have a favorite um, purchaser lined up, and that's something that you need to be aware of. That does happen occasionally. And what happens is they you know they might have a mate or whatever, and they sort of think this is a good price. I'll get you in and um, so they get you know they don't put it out there they don't widely advertise the whole thing and then somebody comes along and puts in a good offer and they get the they get the deal and I anyway I spotted this through my own channels and I, I remember the guy you know just making it difficult for me to buy and I had to write him a bit of a stinker of a letter saying you know I think you're lining this up for somebody and blah 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 anyway sure enough he was pretty offended at my letter and it went into an open market kind of bidding situation. So it was, I remember the price initially was 950000 for this commercial building. And um, it had formerly been a bank. And so it was, it had the special planning permission that banks require. And um, when, I, when I spoke to my architects, they said, yeah, we can go and we can put in all sorts of retail and we can do this and we can do that. So I was going, looking at all that. I was speaking to the architects, wanted to know what could be done before I bought it. And I was pretty sure that at 950,000, I can make a good profit. So I put in my bid, 950. This other guy that they had, that I suspected they had lined up, also bid 950. So I had to build a bid a million, then he went in a million. And then I was called by the agent who said, Oh, you know, our client, the other guy doesn't want to keep on bidding up and up. So we're going to do a best bids. And I can remember thinking like, who do you work for? Do you work for like that guy who's bidding against me or do you work for the client who's trying to sell the property? And uh, anyway, long story short, I, I put in a, a letter with my with my offer. And what I did was I said that I would pay 5,000 more than the highest other offer <laughs> so I, that might sound a bit simple but actually it worked and what i did was i said that whatever the other offer is up to a maximum price of and so i capped it so i was prepared to go to 1.25 million that was i didn't see myself making much of a profit after that and so i didn't want to go beyond that and so i said i will bid one point i, can't, I think it was 1.05 million um, but in the event that somebody else bids higher than that, I will bid 1.2 million and I'll go five grand higher if, if, if a similar bid comes in for 1.2 million. So that was the kind of structure of the letter. And anyway, I got a call. Okay, Gavin, you have been successful. The property is now yours. So I, ha I went and I put a deposit down. You have to pay 10% down. So immediately I had to get 120,000 for this 1.2 million purchase. And I put that down and then I started talking to the banks because I needed to borrow all of the rest of the money. I didn't have 1.2 million lying around at all. And I barely had the 120,000, to be honest. And so I put that money down and um, then I started engaging the architects and all the different people. And what actually happened was fascinating. Along came another bidder that was an institution, a financial institution, and those guys did not move as quickly as myself and this other chap and they were assessing it and they had like guys looking at it and architects and all sorts of stuff and the bidding war started while they were doing their due diligence and when they came back to actually come and buy the property it was already mine and so they had to come to me now and talk to me about buying it and so they approached me through an agent and the agent was actually a guy I know and he rang me up and he just said Gavin did you just buy that property? And I said, yeah, I did, yeah. And, he, and he's just like, you know, I was actually looking at that for a client and he's really peeved that we didn't get it and he, he just wants to buy it from you. What will you accept? And I explained, I'm not going to be 
selling it. Like I've got a, an architectural team lined up. We're going for planning. We're going to turn it into this and that. And you have to play a little bit of hardball. So, you know, if you're going to say, oh, yeah, I'd love to sell it. That's not going to be if you're if you're if you're too eager to kind of sell on, you've just lowered your price straight away. So I was playing kind of hard to get. And I was saying, honestly, I have no plans to sell this property to short term. I, you know, I have architects, I'm going to develop it and I expect I'll make, you know, a substantial profit and I'll hold it for the long term. So this drove the price up in the minds of this financial institution. And long story short, two months later, I signed the sale uh, agreement with them and I sold the property for 3.7 million. So in the space of just two months, I turned that 1.2 million investment into a 3.7 million investment. And what was extraordinary about it was that I had only put 120,000 of my own cash in. I had borrowed all of the money I needed to get the 120, to get the 1.2. And then I sold it to these guys uh, for 3.7. So a 2.5 million profit off of the back of a um, 120,000 investment. And so that's, you know, that's a 20x return in two months. So that is in terms of a, an ROI, a return on investment, that is extraordinary. You're never going to get anything kind of similar to that. And that was a fluke. And one of the things that I wish I had was somebody a bit older than me whispering in my ear that, you know, Gavin, this is a fluke. You'll never do this kind of a deal again and therefore be careful. But of course, that didn't occur to me. And I went mad and started buying cars and all sorts of stuff. That is why you have to be disciplined in this game. And you, you, you might all think that, you know, well, you know, splurge a little bit here and there but uh, and you know yes of course you can go and if you made that kind of money you can spend a bit but you just got to be careful that you're not losing the run of yourself the second deal i bought and it was actually off the back of that was a building a house out in a place called fox rock in ireland in dublin here and it's a it's a good area it's kind of the high high value houses all this stuff and this old house i saw um was sitting on one and a half acres of land and a partner approached me who owned an adjoining piece of property. And he said, look, Gavin, why don't we buy this together? I have this piece of land and you have a kind of a piece of the jigsaw as well. And so we we, we went into auction and we bought it. And we bought this property for 2.3 million. And again, we went to a bank. We borrowed the entire amount this time. I didn't even have to put a deposit down. This was during the noughties. You know, this is 2002, I think it was 2002, maybe 2003 and uh, the market was a little bit depressed back then because the dot-com bubble had burst and on top of that September 11th 2001 had made meant the market was very soft and a lot of people were kind of holding back doing a lot of things so all of this was had affected the prices and so we were able to get it at 2.3 million and it was a substantial old house like built like 110 years ago or something like that but it had a really decent sized garden and we thought we could build a couple of houses in the back garden and we went for spoke to an architect and he planned out four substantial uh, detached houses in the back garden plus keeping the original house on about a half an acre and uh, anyway we went off for planning and this was an area that had no zoning at the time for this type of development these, this was an area that was, in the views of the planners at the time, it was supposed to be a place that had no, um, no more than one house to the acre. And that was the way things worked back then. You had sort of acre. So it was big, big houses on an acre. And so our planning permission was rejected initially. What we actually found was that the zoning had to be changed to four houses to the acre or whatever, five houses to the acre. And so our initial planning permission was a failure and it cost us some money to do that. And then on top of that, the interest is running on the bank loan. And I can remember just after 2011, you know, 9-11, I was a bit nervous. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, you know, this is this is a big loan. I owe my, my share of this loan is one point one five million. And on top of that, the interest is rolling up. So it's growing all the time. And I was just a bit nervous, like, how am I going to pay this loan off if this doesn't work for us? Uh, anyway, we did our plans. We got four houses, um, planning for four houses, and we went off to an estate agent and the estate agent told us that we should probably be able to sell each one of those houses for about one million each. And so it was a nice area. So this is what we expected. A million each for one of these houses. And so we went for planning again 
and the planning permission was rejected a second time. And so this was delaying us for another year or two. And it was very nerve wracking because this loan was growing. And I can remember, I think at one stage it was at like 1.6 million was my share of the, of the loan. And I had nothing to show for it. I didn't have any planning permission. I didn't have anything. So that's where your mindset has to become quite strong in this business. You have to be resilient. You have to understand that this is a possibility that it'll take a year or two. And so don't always be, you know, the, ro- the rosy kind of picture thinking that this will definitely win. You could be holding on to it for quite a period of time. Long story short, in about three years later, we finally got the third planning permission was successful. We got four big houses in the back garden of this house, plus a driveway in and um, the, the, the estate agents told us, yeah, by now it was it was like 1.2 million was the expected price per house. So that was looking at a decent enough profit for myself and my partner. I think we both expected that we would take about a 600,000 profit each out of this deal. So we started construction and um, it took about a year and a half of construction to to build those houses. And in that time, the construction, the, the, the property market just went berserk and prices were rising so fast that when we actually came to the point where the houses were now finished and ready to start selling, we had a, an approach from a man and he paid us 4.1 million for his house. And so that is the way the market had gone. It went from 1.2 to 4.1 when we sold that one of those houses. And then, so this was a bonanza. This was myself and my partner were making more on one house sale than we had expected to make from all four houses. So the second house was sold and it sold for 4 million. And it was actually sold to the, um, it was sold to the, the daughter of the guy who had bought the first house. So he wanted to live near his daughter and things like that. So it was actually, it was fascinating to see. And he had done very well. He had sold his business. So he had plenty of cash and that was just what he did. Next was, what will we do with the other two houses? And by this stage, we had made a lot more money than we had expected. And so my partner and I decided that what we would do is we would take one of the houses each for ourselves. So I moved into one, he moved into the other, and we both kind of like personalized them and did little extensions and all this. And we lived there. And the purpose that I did that was because you can buy it um, and any profit you've made uh, is going to basically locked in and you don't actually have to pay any tax on it when you sell it. And that was why I did that. So that deal you know, netted us each something like four or five million. It was a, an extraordinary deal and um, all off of the back of 2.3 million investment. And um, and so that was definitely one of the best deals. And the funny thing is, is as I get into the worst deals, it's actually connected to that to that particular project. So let's get into the worst deals. And um, there's before I get into the worst deals, I'm going to give you guys some tips and some hints and anyone who's familiar with my content may have heard this before but these are my three e's and my six or's and the three e's will catch you out and the six or's if you implement them will always sort of save you from yourself and from the mistakes that you can make so let's go into three e's first these are these are the things that will always catch you out that will come along unexpectedly and will screw you up in a big way And so the three E's are the ego, the emotions and the economy. And I have experienced all three. The economy, let's start with the economy. Like look at COVID-19, last November, December, everything looked like 2020 was going to be the most amazing year. And it looked as if nothing could stop it. It was just, it was going to be another bonanza of a year. Suddenly COVID-19 comes along and now we're looking at hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs and the market is definitely going to contract. So because of that, the economy, that just, the economy can change so quickly. It can change overnight. You have to be so careful. Um, One of the things that I'm very conscious of now is that any deal that you do, even if it looks like it's an absolute no-brainer, and that's a word I refuse to use normally, if it's a no-brainer, you just still have to be very, very careful and assume that what what if the economy collapses overnight? you could actually end up holding onto this property and nobody wants it. So you've got to be very careful that whatever you do, you do not get into a situation where you have bet everything on one deal 
regardless of whether the economy goes up or down. You might do great in that deal, but also you're at the risk of potentially going bankrupt from the deal going wrong. So always make sure you bear in mind that the economy, doesn't matter how it looks today, in a year's time, it could be very, very different. And always bear that in mind. Emotions and ego. One of my first podcasts that I did on this series is um, I talk about this stuff. And the emotion is... You know, your everything you do is affected by emotion. So if you're looking at a property and you get it in your mind that oh, I'd love to own that property, okay, that's your emotion now playing games on you. You'd love to own that property. That's going to force you to pay more than it's possibly worth. It's also going to mean that potentially your love of that property can be recognized by the person who's selling it or by the agent who's working for the person who's selling it. And they will just know that this guy has fallen in love with the property he is going to pay more than, and I can remember, there's a, here's an example of where this worked for me. Um, my sister was buying a property and she didn't know how to do this kind of stuff. And so she asked if I would negotiate with the, with the seller. And I, I knew about this. First of all, I had no emotion in it. I wanted to help my sister out, but I wanted to get her a good deal. I didn't want to, I didn't fall in love with the property. I went and bought this property for her, but I can remember the agent came back and he said, listen, and the seller, you're nearly there. This is the kind of thing that they tell you. You're nearly there. Um, just a little bit more and I think you'll have the deal. And that's, that'll, if you're, if you're a guy who's in love with the deal, you're going to go say, okay, I'll give you another 25 grand or another 50 grand or whatever it is. And they get you to kind of incrementally up your offer. And my answer to him was, listen, I already think I've, I'm overpaying for this. So I'm just going to go and talk to my sister now and I'm going to tell her, let's keep looking and pull, withdraw the offer that we've made. And he was like, oh, hold your horses, hold your horses. Let's not, you know, be too rash. And sure enough, he accepted the deal that we had tabled. And that was because I didn't have any emotion. I wasn't tied to it. And the same thing can happen when you're in the process of selling a property. Your emotions can be there. You can feel offended when somebody offers you a low price. But you have to just look at the market in a cold, sort of emotionless way. And you have to think to yourself, the market is falling prices are dropping, the prices probably will continue to drop. So the price that I'm being offered today, whether that is, you know, in my view, a good price or not, you really just have to look at it and evaluate it in a cold kind of way. And that will save you a lot of money. In 2010, I was selling property and I remember being offered this price that I thought was terribly low and I was offended. I, I remember telling the guy to F off at uh, that kind of price. And uh, anyway, lo and behold, two years later, I sold the price uh, property for probably a million lower than that price. And that is what your emotion will do to you. You get caught up in this kind of, you get offended. You're not actually coldly, rationally, rationally looking at the market and saying, you know what, I'm going to take that money now while I can. And so emotion. And then ego, one of the biggest problems in this business is success. If you have a couple, like I've told you my best two deals, you have a couple of great deals and you're going to be in a situation where you um, think that you're invincible and, you know, you make all this money and everything like that. Suddenly you're going to find that you're in a situation where you think that now I can afford the big house, I can afford the flashy car, I can afford the, the Rolex watch. All of this stuff starts to happen to you and you, you start to forget that the economy can change at any moment. And that is definitely something that happened to me. And I ended up, you know, this, my, I'll talk to you now about my second deal. Um, the worst one, uh, the worst deal, I should say. So just before I get onto that, I'm going to go into my six oars. And these are the things that will stand to you over time. And these are the things that will actually help you and help your business um, and help your career. First of all, have a roadmap. Um, and by that, I mean a vision of where you're going with your in, in your as an investor. Are you going to be a passive investor or are you going to be an active investor? By that, I mean, are you going to are you prepared to roll up your sleeves and actually become like a project manager? Or do you just want to buy something and sit back and do nothing um, and just let the, and collect rent? You got to know these kind of things. Also, as I mentioned earlier, trading versus long term hold. You have to understand what type of investor. If you're a trader, then you're going to be on this roller coaster waiting, trying to get out at the right time. If you take the Warren Buffett approach and just say, you know what, I'm going to own this property for 20 years. 
that's a far better way because the market will go up, it'll go down, it'll go up, it'll go down, but you'll be collecting rent the entire time and you just have to be careful about that. So make sure you have a very clear idea. Also, if you want to be, do you want to be a, um, uh, do you want to be a big, you know, a big deal? Do you want to be kind of like the big kahuna that the guy that has, you know, their Mercedes and the big huge house or do you just want to have a comfortable life? Um, because you can find that if you're, you know, you're, you're trying to live up to expectations of other people and stuff rather than actually what you yourself would like. And sometimes simplicity is a lot better. I've, I've gone through the thing where I had, you know, lots of staff working for me and all that and huge amounts of debt and, you know, sleepless nights and all that. And you have to think about that. Do you want comfortable life? Yes, for me. Next, next of all, restraint. Restraint is key. And that is by that. That's what I mean when I go back to the patience and discipline comment before. Restraint is where you decide that you're not you don't need to take money out of the property right now. You decide that, you know what, I think I can I can delay getting my payday for another year or two or whatever it is. Everybody wants the quick and easy. I mean, one of the worst things you can have is trying to keep up with the Joneses. So and that's called, that's happened to me as well. And that's tied into your ego. And one of your friends buys a nice flashy new car and you're thinking to yourself, geez, I could afford something like that because my property has gone up so much over here. And next minute you're going to the bank, you're trying to get out, you know, 30 grand, 50 grand so you can buy the nice car. And that is all because one of your friends bought that something similar and you want to keep up with them. And all of this affects you. You need to be strong mentally and you need to kind of figure out a way that this kind of stuff does not affect you. If somebody comes along and you don't know whether that guy has borrowed so much money, you don't know whether he's inherited it, you don't know anything. And so don't compare yourself with others. And this is why people sort of say, you know, looking at Instagram and all that, you know, you're looking at people's highlight reel. You're not looking at the reality. You might find that these guys have absolutely no money, that they're living right up to, you know, they have every month they have payments to make and they can barely afford anything, but they put on the big show and they got the flashy car and all that. And that's all part of their ego. So exercise restraint, hold yourself back. Resilience. That is what I've talked about in last week's episode seven of this podcast. I talked about the need for resilience, that this is a very cyclical market. It rises and it falls and you need to be prepared for when it does fall. You don't want to be stuck in a situation where you've built yourself up into this person who has to get out at the top of the market. And if it goes down into the kind of falling market situation that you're ruined, and that is where resilience comes in. You may have to hold on for a couple of years and um, longer than you expected and all of that. Um, that's all going on inside your head. That is the inner game. Now, there's an outer side that I talk about and they are reserves. You have got to save your money. You've got to keep money on hand. You've got to always have surplus cash put aside. You need that for your own mindset. You need that for when opportunities come along in a downturn of a market. And you also need to be able to repair and do things like that. The house that I owned, my first property that I rented to the guy for 19 years, I mean, the, the money just kept coming in and in and in. It was fantastic. But over the years, I had to replace stuff. I had to go in, completely fit out bathrooms, new washing machine, new fridge, all of this stuff. Sometimes it happens unexpectedly. So what you need to be doing is as rent comes in, you put aside a portion of that for repairs and renewals. So if the guy has to get, you know, if, if your house needs a new roof, that you don't have to go to the bank to borrow that. You can actually just pay it out of a, of a fund that's sitting there. We call it a sinking fund. Relationships, that's the next or. And this is uh, the fifth or. They are so critical to your success. And over the years, as you meet people, try to stay in contact with them because they become valuable people. I am... Um, some of the deals, some of the best deals that I did were because of people I knew. People gave me, and I'd meet them for a coffee, have a beer, whatever with them. And they would sort of say, you know what, we're going to be doing this with this property. Or they would say something like, yeah, we're expanding the business and we need, you know, two more locations. And I'd be like, oh, really? Where do you, where do you want those locations? And as soon as they told me, I'd be down the next morning to that town and I'd be looking for the location to go in and buy to actually put them in there because I knew I had the relationship that if I went back to him and I said, listen, you said you wanted to go into this town. Well, I've actually identified a property. Would you like to, to you know, come and see it? And suddenly 
you have a deal there that you didn't know about. Nobody knows about it because it's your relationship that has done it. And lastly, reputation is the last or. And that is key to this business. You've got to be man of your word, woman of your word. Don't be a person that you know, says one thing, does another. I've been messed around by so many people. You know, you, they end up with this reputation of being slippery and nobody wants to do business with them. So stick to your, you know, plan. Be straightforward with people. Don't look for the sly, um, you know, the quick kill. Because, you know, there's a thing called the win-win deal. And that is where you're winning and the other person is winning. And that's the best type of deal. And that person will probably do business with you again. Whereas the win-lose, you'll meet these people out there that they don't feel like they've won unless they've made you lose. And so those are the worst types of people. So, you know, be magnanimous, be a kind of a, you know, be grateful that you've got these friends out there, that you've got these great relationships. Here in East Point that I'm running this business park, I meet with all of the tenants on a regular basis and I have a great relationship with them. And they might come to me with a problem and I don't try to shy away from the problem. I say, how can I help? And that is, so that stands to me and they come to me very friendly. It's easy to get stuff done. Your reputation is everything. So now for the, the big talk, we're going to talk about the worst deals. The worst deals are quite painful to talk about because they were so easily avoided and I just was stupid and piled into them because of my ego. And um, so the first one I've got to say is um, uh, the property that I bought in um, the houses that I moved into, the old original house that was sitting there on the half an acre. I got it into my head that I wanted to completely renovate and refurbish this old house. And it was, it was a big old house. It had, um, you know, it was, it had a half an acre of land and it was old. It was like 110, 120 years old, something like that. And I can remember looking at it going, wow, you know, I could have this like really big meaty kind of house sitting in this location in Fox Rock. And, uh, you know, that would be, you'd really arrive, you've arrived if you've got this big period house with kind of six bedrooms or eight bedrooms or whatever it was. So I designed it all up, but I had to buy my partner out and he had one half of it, I had the other half of it. And so I can remember agreeing with him on the price and I paid him over money. So I had to borrow that money. And then I decided that I would do up the house. So I had to borrow money on my own house. Now, the house I was living in, the old, the new house that I had built in the back garden, I didn't have any debt on that. Everything was in great shape. And I could have just lived in this beautiful new house, debt free. But instead, I went, borrowed a load of money to go and do up the other house. And then the market crashed. And when the market crashed, uh, I ended up having to sell. It, it took a couple of years. I got all this planning permission. I couldn't afford to actually go and get the property done up. And it sat there and it sat going into disrepair. And what actually happened in the end, I sold that property and I sold it for 700,000, having paid my partner the equivalent 3.5 million um, for the total property. So I gave him 1.75 for his share, which was the value of what my share was at the time. So basically lost a million on that deal. And, um, that was all because of my ego, like t telling me that I could live in this mega house and this big mansion and all that. The next thing I did then was I've also bought a property in a, a kind of working class part of town here in Dublin. And it was rough place, but it, the property was we paid 500,000 myself and a partner. And it was a retail unit and it was in a prominent location, very near one of the big stadiums. So we thought to ourselves, oh, this is going to be fantastic. There'll be so many people passing by all the time, every time there was a big game at the stadium. So we bought it for 500,000 and we immediately had a, uh, before we bought it, we had gone to one of our relationships and we had spoken to a convenience store operator, one of the big ones here in Ireland. And those guys were saying, yeah, absolutely. We see what you mean. We'd absolutely love to be in that location too. So they were mad keen and we decided let's proceed with the development. And in that process, we bought the building and we were talking to these tenants that were going to move in and they were going to pay us a certain amount of rent that would make meant this deal was going to be, as myself and my friend said, a no brainer. I think we were going to go from value of 500,000 to 200 to 750,000 in immediately as soon as we signed the deal with the tenant. So we thought to ourselves, easy seven, easy 250 profit for almost no work. And so we jumped on it. 
few weeks later, I was talking to the architect for the other, um, for the, for the tenant. And he decided to meet me out on site and we met. And as we were talking about the property deal, he went and um, he noticed that the adjoining property next door had a planning permission notice up. And so he had a look at it. And as soon as he saw, he said, oh, my God, they're building a convenience store here as well. And when he told his client, they pulled out of the deal. And just like that, they were out of the deal and there was no more to be talked to. I just couldn't convince them, even though they had spent money on planning and all this kind of stuff. They were out of the deal and that was that. And myself and my partner tried to find other tenants to go in and nobody would touch it. And so in the end, seven full years later of having an empty unit, paying interest every month and all that, we ended up selling that property. And we, we actually didn't sell it. We gave it away to, in, to an auction, uh, one of these kind of distressed market auctions. And the property was sold for 136000 to a buyer. And so that's a distressed sale for you. So bought for 500, sold for 136. And that just gives you an idea of how bad it can be when you get it wrong. And if you just pile into a deal without doing your process, your due diligence, all of that kind of stuff, it can really, really go against you. So you have to be very, very uh, careful, cautious. You have to, and that is one of the problems with success. You, you can get burned very badly with success. So that's it for episode eight of Behind the Facade. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode useful, please consider sharing it out to your friends and indeed leave a review on whatever platform you happen to be listening in on. If you have any questions or topics you'd like covered in future episodes, please leave a comment on our Facebook page, Behind the Facade. And while you're there, please leave a comment and tell me where in the world you are listening in from. And um, I always find that useful to know. If you would like to participate directly in future live Q&A episodes, please join our new Facebook group Behind the Facade community where I'm very active and I do all my live videos about real estate investment innovation and impact. If you want to connect with me, you'll find me. I have a website called GavinJGallagher.com. And lastly, check out my YouTube channel. YouTube channel is called PropTech TV, all one word. And I talk about a lot about innovation in real estate and prop tech is property technology. That's what I go into in that particular um, channel. And so that's it, guys. I hope you have a great week and speak to you next week. Mm-hmm.